The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on in the world of business, technology, and HR. Here's your host, Ira Wolf, and co-host, Keith Campagna. Hey, welcome back, Googleization Nation. What a crazy week. Um, we, when you talk about, you know, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, and complexity, ambiguity, disruptions seems to be all around us. We've got the impeachment going on with certainly its share of drama and disruption. We've got the uncertainty of a coronavirus, a coronavirus uh, going around the world, pretty scary stuff. We got a volatile stock market this week. Uh, during the week, um, you know, reacts one day like the end is near and then rebounds the next. Uh, And then we've had the unfortunate passing of two massively influential people uh, in our lives. Uh, We had the tragic death, unexpected death, way too early of Kobe Bryant. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, a legend in in not only an athlete, but uh, really, you know, helping the community. And uh, you can just turn on the news and see how he impacted so many lives. But just a few days earlier than that, we had the passing of Clayton Christensen. Uh, Some of you may not be familiar with him. He was the author of The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, It's a book about 23 years ago, still one of the most popular business books of all time, influenced a lot of people. Uh, He's known as the father of disruptive innovation. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. That, um, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, certainly Kobe, maybe another time we'll talk about leadership. And and certainly he, he was on that edge of Gen X and millennials and, uh, you know, did, certainly didn't fit the stereotype of, of what they, they said about um, ne- either of those generations. Um, but today we're going to talk about, uh, we're, we're going to be really focused on uh, Dr. Clay Christensen, who impacted the lives of uh, millions of people uh, through businesses and also personally. He's a very spiritual and religious man. Um, but, and so I reached out to the network um, to kind of hear firsthand uh, from someone. And the um, I graciously, uh, Carlos Castellan, uh, who was a former student of Dr. Christensen at Harvard Business School, um, is going to join us. And Carlos was the founder or is the founder of the Navio Group. Uh, you'll hear a little bit more about that. Um, and as I said, his life and career were enormously impacted, as he'll share uh, from just meeting and, and learning from, um, you know, Clay Christensen. So he'll join us in just a minute. Um Keith, um, any any thoughts? You know, it's it's tragic and it's unfortunate, and it's also amazing to see the um, the way that Kobe and Clay essentially combined uh, this reality of hard work with human potential. And you know, you, all you have to do is check out YouTube to 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 hear and be reminded of all the amazing things that Kobe Bryant has done and his philosophy as it relates to just working hard and being smart about it. And then Clay, whose focus wasn't 
just on being an innovation disruptor inside of a business context, but his belief systems as it relates to who you are as a person uh, far exceeded, as far as I could tell, far exceeded what he's done on an innovation disruption level. And he's done a whole lot in that regard. So I'm just like the rest of us this week. I, I'm kind of sitting back and taking it in and uh, appreciating the, the, the people that the information we have access to and uh, learning about you know, what's to come. Yeah, and we've got we we've got uh, we do definitely want to spend a lot of time with Carlos. So we're going to kind of cut short our intro here and really just jump into it. But before I do that, I want to thank Zor.ai and Success Performance Solutions again uh, for being sponsors of the show. Uh, really help us uh, help us get to you and and be able to share some of these great guests and and uh, our our continual learning. I, I don't know, you know. Hopefully, our listeners are getting as much out of this as you and I are, Keith. Um, please make sure you go up to uh, Googleization Nation and sign up for notices about uh, upcoming shows, past shows, uh, invitation to some webinars that we're planning, uh, live streams, and um, you know a, a lot more to come. And um, my my the second edition of my book uh, next Tuesday it's officially out, uh, but you can order a free copy today. Uh, you can go to join.googleizationnation.com. That's join dot googleization uh you get uh, the the print copy won't be available for uh for a few weeks but the uh you'll get an immediately get a digital copy so appreciate that uh we're going to take a short a real quick break here and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors and then uh, we'll be right back with uh, carlos castellan and we're going to be talking about disruptive innovation and clayton christensen Imagine how your company would grow if your candidate experience earned a 99% approval rating. Well, to get to 99%, you need the three best letters in recruitment technology, XOR. Zor's text bots, chat bots, and audio bots increased IKEA's candidate conversion rate 455%. Zor decreases candidate drop-off rates, improves your candidate experience, and collects analytics for future strategies. To learn more, check out Zor.ai. It's XOR.ai. You know, last week on Friday, we had the passing of a legend uh, in, in the business world, uh, Dr. Clayton Christensen. Uh, many of you may have written, read his book, not written it, but read, read his book, Innovator's Dilemma. Um, I think it was out about 1997. Um, it really is sort of the Bible of, of innovation uh, and not, and, and understanding, you know, why, why successful companies, very, very successful companies, uh, such as like a Sears, why wasn't Sears, why didn't Sears become the, the, the first Amazon of the world? It really was the first Amazon in the world. They had a catalog, but why, why weren't they able to uh, change? And uh, so he studied that. Um, and so I reached at what I did was uh, with his passing, uh, I, I reached out uh, the other day to uh, a network and ask for anybody who had whose personal life or businesses were impacted by his model, his theories, his teaching, uh, or him personally. And um, we graciously had a gentleman by the name of Carlos Castellan uh, contact us. And uh, he's our guest today. So welcome to the show, Carlos. Hi, Ron Keith. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. 
And, and thanks. I really appreciate you being here. So you're a, recent, a fairly recent grad of Harvard Business School where Dr. Christensen taught. Uh, you took classes with him. And uh, right before we got on, you were sharing a little bit of a story of, of how uh, the impact that he's having on today's businesses. You literally are a student. I, I can say I've studied um, Dr. Christensen, but I've read his books and, and followed him for years. But uh, you literally are a student of his. Absolutely, yeah. So I had the privilege of taking a class from him my second year of business school. And, you know, it was one of the few years, I think, since he, um, you know, had come back to school that, that he actually taught a semester with a sort of the, the full-time MBA. So it was a real privilege for me to be able to take that class. Um, and I think, you know, what most stands out, I would say, about him in particular is obviously he was a brilliant sort of management thinker, had these great theories. But I think the piece to me that I most remember about him was was really about thinking about the purpose of life. And I think for, you know, a room full of 20-year-old people that are ambitious, uh, that are there, obviously, because they want to advance their learning and, and, you know, improve their careers. I think thinking about that purpose, I think, was really important. So he had written um, a piece and that's accessible to everyone. It's in the Harvard Business Review, um, and it's entitled, How Will You Measure Your Life? And that piece is actually from, you know, essentially a write-up of the speech that he gave the graduating class of 2010. Uh, and I think what it, what it does is it really is a direct reflection of his own values and the person that he was and encouraging everyone in that room to think about um, that purpose. And I know, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but I, I really think about it in relation to, you know, another person that passed away recently here, Kobe Bryant. Um, and he definitely found that purpose, I think, after basketball. For such a long time, he was a fierce competitor and did that. But at the end of the day, you know, I think people, when they think about him over, over the last couple of days, they really talk about that, um, you know, his role as a father, as a mentor, and, and all the people that he touched, uh, both in basketball and, and sort of in his personal life. And I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, is, is just as important as sort of the, the management piece, but, you know, uh, Clay Christensen or anywhere else um, that you may be doing, you know, business athletics anywhere else. Yeah. And from a quote, I mean, just to give people, if they're not familiar with uh, Dr. Christensen uh, or the, uh, how will you measure your life, which was again, another reason that I wanted to kind of touch with you because obviously that, that impressed you, that, that affected you. Um, a quote from that presentation and article was doing deals doesn't yield the deep rewards that come up from building up people there seems to be a disconnect when we talk about disruption and innovation and people because one of my keynotes, one of my, my book, it talks about the displacement of people and the displacement of people comes from innovation and it's certainly disruptive in our lives. And then yet we're talking about building up people. Maybe go, maybe we can go back a little bit and get your kind of brief description for people who don't know what disruptive innovation is and that may kind of that that will hopefully lead into how that um, you know how you can do that and also lead with purpose. So let's go back to how would you define disruptive innovation? Absolutely. So you know I think there's a lot of I think the term disruption oftentimes gets thrown around uh, you know oftentimes today in in relation to innovation. But I think Clay Christensen you know sort of the the key point about disruption theory for him and he had cited, you know, a myriad of examples on this, was disruption is essentially about going after non-consumption or low consumption in a market. So when a, you know, and a company has matured and has high margins, it's going after the biggest clients, 
there leaves sort of this vacuum underneath that to go after um, smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses, and to really build um, from the ground up. And then at a time when, you know, eventually you start picking up the smaller clients, you eventually grow, and then you disrupt the incumbents sort of on the high end. So he had, you know, a, a, a litany of examples that he used. And I think, you know, to go back to your thinking about Sears, I think the way to think about that, if you were to apply uh, Clay Christensen's framework around disruption, is to say, you know, Sears was obviously this legacy player. And I looked it up the other day, it was crazy. You know, we think about the last decade. Well, they were at $45 billion uh, mm -hmm. in revenue in 2010 which is just crazy. They're on the fortune, I think it was fortune 100. Um, so, right. you know, obviously and they had 360,000 employees. Yeah. And, and, you know, that they disappeared basically in the space of 10 years. And I think they were sort of, if you think about them, they, they had a catalog business that obviously had been their legacy business. That's where they made their money. Um, but Amazon came in and, and figured out a way to say, well, there's a segment of the population that we're not serving around catalogs. We're going to leverage uh, the technology, the internet, and so they started out just, you know, selling books online, which was obviously very niche, um, and it's the people that maybe otherwise couldn't find those books at their local bookstore, um, and so they kind of opened this up, and so as a result, they picked off these customers, started building off a of base, and obviously grew that over time. And, and it's a little bit more complex than that, obviously, specifically to Sears because Amazon wasn't necessarily a direct competitor of Sears, but. You know, right, there was Walmart, I mean, Walmart I came along, I mean, in, in you know, in, in the 80s. Well, they, they've been around since the 60s. But, you know, in 1990, I think it was 90 or 91, they surpassed Sears. So, it, again, yeah. they became their, their, their big competitor. Um, and, you know, so the question is, is why wasn't Walmart the next Amazon as well? Yeah, exactly. I think, and so, you know, that thinking about, sort of the non-consumption or, or low consumption and starting from there and growing, um, I, I think is something that we always talk about with our clients today. What are opportunities that maybe you're not going after because um, they're lower margin opportunities, but, you know, someone else might come in and, and, and take that from you um, and eventually grow the business because they're able to refine, you know, gather customers. And by the time uh, you're able to do it, it's too late. I think, you know, another great example of this is Netflix and Blockbuster. Blockbuster had a great model. Uh, it was super profitable for, but for them to invest in sort of the uh, DVD rental business, you know, through mail order just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't as profitable for them. And so you have all these disincentives oftentimes for companies to do that. And Clay, I think, was great about being able to point that out through his management theory to say, you know, consider some of these opportunities, even if they're not the same margin. How do you go after them and then innovate? Uh, to build businesses off of them so that it's not some other uh, player that's coming after you. Can you give an example of another situation where there's low hanging fruit uh, or there's a, a low consumption market that somebody can pick up? I'm, I'm trying to make this real for people that rather than making it more academic, you know, that they kind of something they can relate to. So is there another example you've got? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the ones I think that most has impacted, you know, me and my career um, you know, about a year before I graduated business school, uh, a business started up out of Harvard Business School called Hourly Nerd. Uh, it's now called Catalan. Uh, you know, five years later, they've, they've rebranded. But that business was founded essentially on a lot of the premises, you know, the premise of uh, Clay Christensen's disruption theory. So what the business was, was essentially connecting at that time MBAs um, that had downtime to, uh, you know, small and medium-sized businesses in the area that maybe needed some consulting help, you know, help around sort of financial planning, accounting, you know, basic skills that I think 
um, you know, maybe those entrepreneurs, A, didn't have time to get around or maybe hadn't been, you know, hadn't essentially focused on in their career. And so they could bring in MBAs sort of at a reasonable rate uh, and, and get that support on a part-time basis rather than needing to hire someone full-time. You know, and I, and I know that was sort of at the start of a lot of the, the work around, you know, the, the gig economy. But I think that piece around starting from there and, and kind of growing the business, I think, was really important. So the company, you know, started out as Hourly Nerd had some small clients, uh, small successes. The founders actually went door to door sort of uh, around Boston trying to get people to sign up for it. Uh, and now, you know, five years later, they've raised almost $100 million in funding. Um, they've created sort of a technology system that helps match, uh, you know, independent consultants or consultants with uh, companies as well as actually um, employees at the company. So if there's someone within your company that maybe has a skill set for a particular project, and you might not be aware of that, they can help sort of provide that match. And so they've, they've grown over time, and they started with these small businesses, but now they serve sort of a large uh, segment of the Fortune 500 population because they've gone along over time and refined that and kind of, um, you know, kind of carved out this niche in the market where, you know, as businesses have grown, they've needed, you know, more and more support from these, uh, these different types of resources rather than thinking about needing a higher full-time employee, could they bring in people to serve this, this, you know, meet the needs of this project over time. Are you, are you, how familiar are you? Um, and again, this is probably, I think this came out around the time when, that you were with him with the, his, uh, with uh, Dr. Christensen's jobs to be done theory. Yeah, absolutely. Very familiar. We talked a lot about that. Um, in yeah. I, th I think the story with McDonald's is brilliant. I, I, and again, as I was, I was rereading that the other day, I forgot about it. And as I was rereading that the day after uh, the email came in, like in the middle of the afternoon or something. And, and uh, uh, I saw that and they had referenced that and, and it was like, boy, I haven't heard that in a while. Uh, it's, it's a great example of the McDonald's story. And I immediately started to make references of how, that can fit into the world of HR today of, of when they're thinking about uh, disruption or any business, really. So give, give me your take on it. You probably do a better job at explaining it than I can for sure. So. Absolutely. You know, I think that a lot of, in a lot of ways, the jobs to be done piece is, is interesting in a variety of different ways. And I think like, as, as I think about it in the world of retail, you know, I, I think they oftentimes the job to be done that people think is, um, oftentimes around, I need this particular product or like I have a particular need in my, let's use apparel for example, in my wardrobe for a pair of shoes or, um, and that, that might be a specific job to be done and that's ultimately why people go to retail. But I think also, you know, more and more retailers are, for example, discovering that a job to be done is also shopping and entertainment. Um, you know, so it's not only about the product, but it's about that entertainment and that experience piece. You know, so one of the things we think a lot about now as we, as we work with our clients is, you know, how do consumers think about you in, in relation to either some measure of convenience or some measure, you know, of experience or entertainment. And you're seeing that, you know, across the country as malls kind of rethink their space. Uh, you know, I know that there's the American Dream Mall that's opening up in New York. And that particular one, I believe, has now greater uh, square footage dedicated to entertainment than it does to retail. And so I think it really speaks to that jobs to be done piece, which is, you know, people go uh, to the mall to buy product, but they're also going um, to have some sort of entertainment experience. And so I think that thinking applies to so many different things. And it might be, you know, there's a primary job, there might be a secondary job, but thinking through that, 
uh, and what you're fulfilling for the customer as part of it, I think is, is important. And just to give people reference for that, um, McDonald's, basically, you know, familiar with the, the burgers, fries, and, and milkshakes. Um, but when they did a study, they found that the majority of milkshakes were purchased before 8.30 in the morning. And so they, they wanted to know why, and they were, you know, they were playing with taste and, and how to deliver the food faster and other things. But it didn't answer the question, why, um, you know, why would people buy a milkshake at 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning? And as it turned out, um, and this is where the, where the job, the, the, the job that people want done when they buy a milkshake is that if you, per, if you eat breakfast at 6.30, 7, 7.30 in the morning, you have a bagel, you have a banana, you have something, it, it's done and it sits there. And then by 10, 10.30 in the morning, you're hungry and you have nothing. Where the milkshake, because it's so thick, it, I, I, think they, I, think the, I think their statistic is it takes 23 minutes if, if you purchase, you know, from the time you buy it, the milkshake, it would take you 23 minutes to sip it through a straw. And they found out that uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, it softened up a little bit and it was refreshing. It basically quenched the thirst and quenched the, the, um, uh, the hunger uh, that people wanted. And that's why people bought milkshakes at six or in the morning, which they would have never known without tracking that and studying it and, and learning about it. His, his reference was, is, the, the milkshake's a job, I mean, is a job. I mean, they're basically, is I have a job, uh, the milkshake has a job, and the job is to quench thirst and hunger three hours after I purchased it. I'm curious, Carlos, when you look at the retail industry, are there certain um, consistencies with regard to the people you're meeting with and, and talking with about what they're paying attention to and, and how this, this you know, I, the retail market is probably one of the most victimized marketplaces as it relates to technology. Uh, are, are people still holding on to some sort of uh, you know, days of the old or is everyone pretty much subscribed to we got to figure this out? Yeah, I think, you know, there's been an increasing um, acknowledgement that the models oftentimes need to evolve and, and, and go forward. You know, one of the, the people that I really admire in this space is uh, Ron Johnson, and he now leads a company called Enjoy Technology. And what they do, they have a really innovative business model where they essentially um, don't have any stores, actually. So you, you purchase online and they have someone come to your door uh, within a matter of hours with that particular product. And it's all electronics. So they come and help you set up the item. Um, they walk you through the installation. It, so it's a really brilliant model because it essentially sort of captures the human element of retail, knowing that people, you know, maybe will still shop online for certain things, but that human connection is really important. And what I found really interesting about Ron's model is he has, you know, he had this question that he asked, um, and it was interesting what his take on it was, but he basically said, you know, there's different uh, stakeholders in a company. There's the customer, there's the employee, there might be shareholders. Um, and so his question was essentially, you know, who, who do you choose to focus on? And for Ron at Enjoy, they choose to focus on the employee because they really believe if you have employees that are, you know, uh, show up as happy that they're, you know, there and you treat them well, they're going to serve customers really well, which in turn obviously helps drive the business. And I've started to see more and more of that across uh, you know, retail is really that focus on the employee and the experience that's provided for them because of how it translates to the customers. And I know, you know, one of the cases uh, that we often look at is, is Best Buy. 
um, and that turnaround that occurred there under Hubert Jolie. And that was another key piece from, from him as well, is really investing in people there, getting the right people in both the stores and the leadership positions because of how that translates to the customer. So I think, you know, as we go along, I see that being more and more uh, critical as people think about it. And that's something that I know our clients are thinking about as well, is, is how do we work with our employees to make sure that then that, you know, what we're doing translates to the customer. And I got to say from on the, uh, on the HR tech side of things, Carlos, I've often wondered, uh, I've seen uh, some companies shift gears almost to be a service deliverable first that has technology, you know, and, and there was like this shift in the marketplace within the last 10, 15 years where companies were just selling software. Here's our software. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Then it turned into a, let's call it um, save the client mentality. It wasn't necessarily being proactive with helping them with software, but it was more so than just trying to keep the client from, from canceling the agreement. And now, uh, you know, to your point, there's almost a increased focus on not just selling software, uh, and it could be HR or finance or, or, you know, maybe even, um, project management, but it's really providing that support to you, to, you know, implement it, to turn it on, to set it up, to use it, to, you know, that continuous engagement comes on the experience side, not just the product side. Absolutely. And I think that's critical as well to building those long-term relationships. You can't view it as just a transaction. You know, it has to be more about the relationship that you're building with customers and, and sort of going beyond that. So whether that's, you know, a B2B business that's selling technology or whether that's, you know, a B2C business like retail where you have customers, ultimately, so much of it comes down to, you know, what do they think of you? Are they going to come back um, and, and shop repeatedly? And I think more and more people understand that. Now, I think the tricky part is how do you measure that value? Uh, how do you know, you know, if you're investing a bunch of money in these types of initiatives and you're going through that, like, how do you understand what that's creating from an impact perspective to the bottom line over the long run? And to be honest, I think it's hard to measure. You sort of have to do that. And I think that's the, the art piece of management that yeah. comes in is you have to, you know, be able to make those decisions and, and kind of get a sense that, you know, this, we may not be able to measure this, we may not understand it, but we believe that it's ultimately leading to the best outcome for the customer and, and then therefore our business. Going back to the jobs to be done, and, and this will lead into basically one of our closing question here. And jobs to be done is, you know, part of when they talked about McDonald's, McDonald's, what they did was they reached out, they surveyed their customers. Um, they asked them, the customers, you know, what, what can we do to improve the milkshake? Ultimately, it had no impact on their sales or profit. Sometimes asking your customers what they want isn't necessarily what will either improve your business, improve their experience. Uh, you know, it may solve an immediate problem, um, but it, it's not, it, it's really not relevant in the long term. And, you know, by, by your suggestion of going after those low consumption um, ideas or Dr. Christensen's uh, suggestion that you do that, um, you're, you're sort of solving that need. What, what they can't articulate or they won't articulate what they need um, because nobody ever needed an iPhone. But once it was created, everybody needs an iPhone now. In, in the HR world, going back to this is employee experience, which, because that's a big buzz right now and an important one of how do we improve, improve both the candidates and employee experience. If we survey employees, if I'm, I'm a business owner, I've got 
you know, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 employees. Uh, and I survey them. They're not, they may or may not articulate what that need is that I need to, to solve. I may not be resolving what the job that, you know, how do I, how do I meet the, that need? What, when you're working with your retail clients, how do you help them figure out what their, what that low consumption Absolutely. What, what you know, as, so as, an, as a specific example, you know, one of the things that I really uh, look at today and sort of admire in the broader retail landscape is Best Buy is actually going after uh, the medical device space and actually monitoring. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're thinking about the customer in terms of the home uh, and electronic devices and sort of the, the connected home. And so, you know, obviously that means there might be light bulbs, there might be, uh, you know, there's cell appliances, they're thinking about TVs, but also you can start getting into sort of the medical device space uh, because all of that kind of connects and, and is this ecosystem around the customer. And obviously that means, you know, in a lot of ways, there's a lot more regulation. It, it looks very different, but it, it makes a lot of sense as well to connect it because you're already serving that customer. Um, in right. sort of an electronic space and they're providing monitoring and, and warranties on a bunch of different things. It, so, you know, I think that's an example of an area where they can think about it as saying, we're going to serve this customer. It might look very different, um, you know, in terms, because it's a medical device, but it leverages sort of our core strength because this is a, you know, um, ultimately a job to be done for, for our customers that we, we think we can help with. So, yeah. so, sim so simple and, and, and basically brilliant, but basically you got the geek squad going out They're they're helping people and it's like, Hey, what else can we do for you while we're here today? And who doesn't have some technology problem? So. Right. But there's, it, more yeah, to exactly. it. there's more to it though, because, you know, it goes back to, you know, th this idea of innovation and disruption because the plan is simple enough, but now, I can only imagine, Carlos, what it's like when you sit down and f in a f with a bunch of stakeholders and tell them how different they have to look at their future plans. You know, now we're talking about leading people. We're talking about, uh, Ira, what was it that um, Charlene gave? Was it the Adobe, right? Oh, yeah. Where they, they yeah, Adobe, yeah, went from, yeah, went from uh, selling boxes of software yeah. to uh, the cloud. Right? They went to the cloud and they had to pretty much tell everybody Carlos, we're, we're going this way. This is what we're doing, you know, and, and it, it seems more and more that that people element, whether or not we talk about it from a, for lack of better terms, rank and file engagement to actual leadership development seems to be the core differentiator of businesses that can make the transaction. Are, are you seeing something like that? Definitely. And I, I would add to it too. I think one of the things that we oftentimes see uh, that becomes difficult for buy-in is, and Clay actually mentions it in, in several different pieces, is actually the financial incentive. Because companies oftentimes think about the business, you know, the P&L is, is set for one year, essentially. Um, or, and that's what the managers and the teams are tasked to hit. What is my number for the fiscal year? And oftentimes when we, when we talk about these opportunities, uh, you know, these are longer time horizons. This isn't going to bear this, you know, you're not going to have the same margins on this particular product or service in the first year. It's a two to three year build. Um, and you have to believe that and you have to invest in it and, and move forward. But I think it's oftentimes hard for um, companies to, or, you know, 
for teams to oftentimes see that if they're saying, well, this is what we're told we need to focus on. Um, and I think that's where the role of management and thinking through incentives and, you know, uh, branding and who you bring into these different products is their projects is really important. And he, you know, Clay Christensen spent a significant amount of time, I think, talking about that in our classes, that there's all these different systems and pieces at play that oftentimes sort of inhibit companies from doing that because it's, it's a strong, you know, it's not necessarily a disincentive, but it's just not a priority or focus to think two to three years out. But as you know, you know, you sort of build on uh, those one year time horizons and fiscal years and all of a sudden you get into a place where, um, you know, the core business has eroded or it's not the same. The last thing I'll add really quickly on this is that I always found this really interesting. He would say that managers always think about um, a steady state future. So essentially they see what's happening today or tomorrow and they sort of project the same out into the future when the reality is it might actually be a declining uh, business into the future. And so, you know, it, it, from that perspective, it oftentimes makes sense to go after these opportunities that may be low hanging fruit, but aren't the same margin because in two or three years that might offset your losses uh, if right. you're in a business that's not growing. Fascinating. Carlos, we, yeah, Carlos, and we, we, we held you longer than I said we would, but I really appreciate it. But I got one final question. So let's circle back to how we started the conversation is about measure, how will you measure your, your life? How will you measure your life? Yeah, it's a, I, I actually think a lot about it uh, in terms of how Clay, Clay mentioned. One of the things that I'm always doing, you know, I, I end up traveling a fair amount in my uh, work life, but I always come back to then, you know, when I'm home, what does the time that I have with my, my wife, uh, my friends, my family look like, and am I making choices in terms of how I invest my time uh, that sort of align to, to how I want to ultimately measure my life. And so for me, that's always kind of a good check that um, I'm doing the things that I want to do and, and, you know, sort of building the life that I want. But I think it was a great message to hear from Clay, uh, you know, five years ago, because I think it's so important and you can go easily go a lifetime without kind of definitely appreciate him and remembering him, you know, uh, this past week and uh, just given how many people he impacted in his own life. And the fact that we're talking about it today, I think speaks to that. Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, you've got a company, the Navio Group. Absolutely. So we work with retail leaders who want to transform their business. Um, we've worked with companies, you know, such as Target and Whole Foods uh, in the past. And so we have the great privilege of kind of sitting, you know, out in the retail space and, and working with clients on a hands-on basis, you know, every day. Um, if you're interested in learning more, you're welcome to visit our website. It's thenaviogroup.com, T-H-E-N-A-V-I-O group.com, or email me at carlos at thenaviogroup.com. Does Navio have some significance? What's Navio? Yeah, so Navio is the ships that the explorers used um, back in the day. And so we found that really inspirational because we, in the same way that the explorers were kind of out there kind of mapping uh, a new course uh, for the world, we're out there helping our clients do the same and kind of uh, navigate a new course, especially given all the change that's happening in the, in the industry. I like it. Hey, we've been talking with uh, Carlos Castellan uh, from uh, the Navio Group. Very, very helpful. Hey, I could have talked to you all day. I can probably talk to you all day about this stuff. So I really appreciate you being part of this and also um, uh, basically honoring uh, Dr. Clayton Christensen, uh, certainly uh, the father of disruptive innovation. And uh, his message will, will go on for a long time. And he lived a wonderful life, uh, just, a, just a good man. 
And uh, so I really appreciate you having some firsthand experiencing, uh, experience uh, with him, some knowledge, uh, having worked with him, uh, you know, sharing that with, uh, with our group. So thanks very much. Appreciate it, Carlos. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much for the opportunity. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. And obviously, really lucky to, to have been able to be taught by Clay and, and wishing uh, his family all the best. Very, very fortunate. And hey, and thanks so much for, uh, for sharing the message. Hi, everyone. This is Ira Wolf, author of Recruiting in the Age of Googleization. I'm excited to announce that my online course, Recruitment Marketing for the Accidental Recruiter, is open for business. This course is the culmination of a two-year-long project and releases recruiting tips I've learned after hundreds of hours of research, speaking with thousands of conference attendees, and interviews with dozens of experts. It's all available to you in Recruitment Marketing for the Accidental Recruiter. To receive more information or get started, visit our website at www.successperformancesolutions.com and click on the tab, Recruitment Marketing for the Accidental Recruiter. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization show. Wow, what an interview. Um, Got to thank uh, Carlos Castellan so much for uh, sharing his experience with uh, Dr. Christensen, Clayton Christensen. And uh, I, by the way, I'm your host, Ira Wolf, and I'm here with Keith Campagna. Keith, um, while we were on break, uh, we got a caller, um, Chris Howard, uh, who also had has quite a bit of experience with disruptive innovation. Uh, You there, Chris? I am, Ira. Thank you for uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, It's quite an act to follow um, listening to the conversation (laughs) you just had with with Carlos. Uh, Some very compelling messages. Yeah, and so I, I understand you've had some experience as well. Um, I don't know if you've personally met Dr. Christensen, but I think you um, you shared that you had some. Um, uh, you, you basically, I think you took his course, or you're part of his course uh, uh, in learning well, about yeah. that. And and you work in the credit unions, am I correct? Uh, I work with credit unions. That's right. Yeah. Um, I am with a, a small company of of credit union consultants, and uh, we specialize in credit unions because credit unions are unique. They're cooperatives. Uh, There are no stockholders. And so the entire focus and uh, mindset and set of objectives are very different than traditional businesses. I was fortunate enough to spend uh, a very little bit of time with Clay, but a lot more time with his ideas and with people who had worked with him quite a bit over many years. I got to know the material and, uh, you know, I've read the books like so many of us of, of a certain age have, but I got to know the material more intimately and eventually got to do a little bit of work with Dr. Christensen when he started putting some of his ideas about uh, taking advantage of disruptive opportunity into play with HBX, what is now uh, Harvard Business School Online. Um, he felt that uh, his business was ripe for disruption. And he made that case uh, inside his faculty and, and inside Harvard Business School. And he created an online course called Disruptive Strategy uh, that my firm took as one of the beta participants. And what we found was, was an extraordinary experience. Um, the material and, and Dr. Christensen's approach really made it very accessible, um, sort of uh, online and and through brief uh, brief lectures and an interactive platform but we walked away wondering what to do with it 
we could take a look at the value proposition we offered our clients and the way we engaged with our clients and we could apply jobs to be done and, and we invested quite a bit in that. But so much of the focus of business is around the primary stakeholder, the stockholder, the owner. And our clients don't have them. They have owners, but owners are customers. Credit union members are both owner and consumer. And we couldn't figure out exactly how to make that transition, how to take this material and make it relevant. And we were able to work with Dr. Christensen and with the folks at, uh, at then HBX, now HBSO, and build a model that let us do that. And he was incredibly supportive of those efforts. Um, even though it meant taking some of his learnings and, uh, and changing the way they were applied, changing the way they were used, the core value that he brought, the notion that consumers have to be the focus of everything, but you can't just go ask them because they can't answer a simple question. People lie by accident, by ignorance, by a desire to make you happy but you still have to find a way to understand what it is they want and why. That whole basic idea behind jobs to be done that let the methodology that's been developed um, find fertile ground and grow. And the idea behind disruptive innovation. You know, when I look at Clay's work, what I take away and, and what, my team and my colleagues and I have tried to make available to credit union executives is that Clay wasn't really a business theorist. Um, in many ways, he was more of a business historian. Uh, he had a strong streak of curiosity and he wanted to understand. He wanted to understand why things didn't work, why people went off and did what they were taught at Harvard Business School and they didn't get the results they were taught to expect. And he built um, an entire career out of that and, and it, uh, an international following, incredible influence. But where the real value, I think, came from is he was practical. And he took what he learned and he boiled it down into tools that could be applied concepts that are really actionable and, and empowering. And I think that that has value uh, probably in any industry. And, and it certainly has value in working inside companies, setting strategic direction, but also aligning that down from, from the C-suite to the front lines. That's what I got out of, out of working with that material and talking with him and, and seeing it applied and seeing it work. So, so Chris, we, we just have a, a few minutes here, um, but I did have a question. I mean, when you talk about credit unions, um, obviously, you know, compared to a lot of other industries, not the most, um, uh, pro I won't say progressive or innovative, but, uh, you know, certainly it's in the banking world, finance world, and they've struggled in the past. And, and especially even with having shareholders, um, you know, in, a, in credit unions, uh, more conservative, I would say, maybe that's the correct word. So, you you know, and I, I love that because our, we talk to HR and we're trying to get a, another very conservative institution 
uh, and function to, um, to, to, to change, to innovate, to grow. Um, is there a specific example without sharing, you know, any proprietary information? Is there an example of of something uh, that that one or more of the credit unions did um, as a result of of the train of um, disruptive innovation? What a number of credit unions we've worked with have done as a result of of taking this course is change, actually change their HR management and change their internal training and make a a significant effort to ensure alignment between long-term strategic goals and the freedom of frontline employees to do their jobs and to engage with member owners. Uh, Remember, shareholders in credit unions are conservative because the shareholders are the customers. In a cooperative, everybody has one share and only one share. And so you vote that share essentially by whether or not you choose to do business and how you do. So opportunity is really found at those front lines. And what we've seen is management that traditionally has been very conservative is far more open to engaging with and listening to and making investments because of the influence of tellers, member service representatives, lenders, people on the front line who interact directly with the market. That's the the single most actionable lesson that that I've seen people take away from from Clay. And it's incredible. It's, uh, thank you for sharing that because, Ira, doesn't it just echo with what we keep seeing people say is the challenge they have making change still today? I mean, like the number one challenge people say is that they don't, you know, executives say they don't trust their leaders and leaders say they don't think their people can handle change. You know, I, I wrote a note down here and as uh, Chris was sharing about low hanging fruit. Um, you know, and again, they're, they're, they've been talking about going to the front lines, you know, for as long as you and I have been around. Um, but the reality is, is that there, that the innovation going back to what Carlos had said about low consumption, it's not going outside and go, okay, what are we missing? What can we build? What can we innovate? What can we, you know, what can we buy? What can we do new? Is that you have, there are employees on the payroll that interface with customers, their customers every single day, uh, or develop products who who have all this potential that management overlooks. That's the low consumption idea. That's the low hanging fruit. Um, that's the breakthrough, as far as I can see. Uh, Chris, I mean, it, it, it sounds like that's exactly what you did, or you helped the credit unions do identify that the front line, the bank tellers, the, the people that interface every day. Uh, was that low consumption or that, you know, basically idea of how do we, we got, we got the people right in front of us. All we need to do is help maximize the potential. We got the people right in front of us. That's exactly right, Ira. And, and as we started this conversation, you seemed a little, little hesitant to call credit unions conservative, but traditionally they are. And the banking business generally is is conservative and credit unions among the most conservative in that broad field Mm -hmm. and it's it's because they're cooperative it's it's because they're owned by their customers and not by other stockholders that they want to be careful and they want to 
um, make sure that they're delivering value and there's not a lot of willingness to take risk. What's great about these ideas, um, what, what the whole Christensen oeuvre brings to bear is that those, those points of focus, taking care of uh, what matters to, uh, in a cooperative, to the member owners and the employees who are among them, really can be empowering. It doesn't have to be, uh, it, it doesn't have to mean that chance passes you by, that opportunity passes you by. If you understand what, what I think Clay was trying to teach, it means that you have particular access to the insights and the ideas that can make you stand out in the marketplace. Because Chris, you're working I, I, directly with the people who have a need. Yeah. Hey, Chris, I hate to cut you off, but we're, we're really approaching toward the end of the show. And and again, just like I said at the end of Carlos, we, we can talk to you for a long time. So hopefully we can get you back for an extended conversation and uh, learn a little bit more. How can um, how can someone get in touch with you, Chris? What's the best uh, way? What's, Callahan, what's your company? Uh, it, it, uh, see Howard at Callahan.com. Um, easy enough. <laughs> yeah, easy enough. Thank you so much for the chance to, hey, to hey, chat with Hey, you thanks for sharing here. your experience. Very, very invaluable. Uh, and uh, again, if uh, the, can, the credit unions um, can do it, um, cooperatives, uh, very conservative groups, HR can certainly do it, Keith. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, uh, a, lot, I mean, a lot to be learned. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> crazy parallels. <laughs> So. Yeah, I think an organization can absolutely do it. I think that HR shouldn't be the captain of the squad. Right, and and uh, again, and, and they're yeah, absolutely so speechless. Um, yeah. And uh, we're almost out of time. So I want to thank everybody for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization Show. Uh, today was just outstanding, um, very insightful. Uh, Keith and I, as you heard, we just kind of laid back for most of it. And, uh, you know, so it was great for us learning, hopefully for everyone else as well. Um, and uh, thanks for joining in. Uh, hopefully you'll you'll share some comments or, or share the show. Um, you know, we'll be posting this on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. Um, we don't forget to join Googleization Nation. Uh, and uh, you can go to googleizationnation.com and uh, you'll get notices of, of this and other shows that are upcoming. We got a lot of great guests uh, in the month of February. Hard to believe we're at the end of January already. Um, let's see. Um, thanks to Zor.ai and Success Performance Solutions again for being our sponsors. Um, until next week, this is Ira Wolf. And Keith Compagna on Geek Skeezers Googleization. Go out and join googleizationnation.com. Uh, we will see you um, a week from today. Don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>